Hello, and welcome to Toller Talk by High Country Tollers. I'm Randy Harold, and today's episode is going to be the basics of training and training with a purpose. Like all great buildings and architecture and all great businesses, pretty much any great endeavor, their success was built on a strong foundation with a plan. It didn't happen overnight, and it didn't happen by accident, and neither should your training. So today, let's talk about setting that foundation and training on purpose and training for success. So why do we want to train on purpose and train for success? I think most of us probably think that we already do it, but it's surprisingly the amount of people out there that I see that really don't. One of the big problems is is that we go out and we just throw some bumpers. We really aren't accomplishing anything, or we throw some marks. When you train without a plan, you're more likely to hit plateaus. You're more likely to train bad habits into your dog that are going to cause correction and time later on. So, whether you're a pet owner or into competitive dog sports, our goals should all be the same. To have well-trained dogs that we can take anywhere and live with without stress, and dogs that we can be proud of and trust in just about any situation. It doesn't really matter where you are in your training. If you've been doing obedience or running field already, this might be a good cast to listen to and take a step back and review what you've been doing and maybe come up with some new ideas of what you want to do in the future. When we talk about training tollers, you know, we hear all sorts of things. We hear that they're soft, that they're the smartest dogs alive, uh, just a lot of generalities. And I will tell you my opinion is, is that I do think they're one of the smartest dogs alive. And if you're listening to this and you're from another breed just trying to pick up tips, I don't say that to brag because it really is kind of a pain in the butt when you have a dog that can outthink you and frequently does in their training. As far as them being soft, you know, it's it's kind of all dog breeds have soft dogs in them. Some are more aggressive than others, and I think that's true in tollers. But to speak in generalities about a toller being soft, I don't really think they're soft. I think they're smart. I think they know when to sit down, not give you what you want, and pretty much give you the dew claw, which does present some problems when training. But before I go off on that tangent, let's get back centered. And uh, I'll tell you, I think one of the books that people should read on the forefront of training or getting into dog sports is How Dogs Think by Stanley Corin. I think I said that right. Oftentimes we look at our dogs and we know they love them and we talk to them and some people appear to think that they talk back. I'm one of those. Uh, And hey, I think that's all right. But I also think that you need to look at your dog and realize that his communication with you is from a pack mentality. And by reading Stanley's book, he'll help you realize and understand what that mentality is where you are in the pack, which can be a tremendous aid when training. How a dog kind of looks at the world, what sensors they use, what's important to them, how they use their eyesight, their hearing, and their nose scent, and put you in a place to where you can actually communicate with that dog. 
And at the basis of it, I guess I would say that good dog training is communicating with the dog and conveying to the dog what you want them to do and having them reciprocate. There was a movie from the 90s, I think it was called Road Trip, and in the movie they're in the bus on the way back to their dormitory and one of the guys is having problems, I think it was with math, and he uh, is asking for help from his buddy and his buddy says, hey, I can teach a monkey this stuff. All I have to do is learn to relate to the monkey in a manner in which he would understand. And I don't think dog training's any different. So with that being said, I'll tell you, be careful what you train your dog to do. You might be training your next bad habit or your next problem. That was from my buddy Don Fecco, and he told me that, I think, around February 2011, maybe. And I'll let you know, we're all guilty of it, especially me. This is one of my hypocrisy moments when I will tell you, if you've looked at your dog and said, sit, 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 gosh darn it, sit, then you're guilty. You've just taught your dog to count to five. And don't be amazed if they don't sit until the fifth one in the future. So think about that when you're giving commands and enforcing it. Make sure you tighten them up and get them to where they're doing it on the first tell, not the fifth. One of the other pieces of advice on the forefront that I'll give is nothing takes the place of good, consistent training. And guess who said that? That was me about two, three years ago. I will also say that within that statement that I think consistency is the name of the game. I think you have to be training on a consistent schedule. And I also think that you also need to be training consistently with your dog so that that communication is never misconstrued. The more clearly you understand what your dog responds to, and the more clearly your dog can expect commands and how you train, the quicker and the easier your training will go. At the end of the day, dog training really is an exercise of asking the question, why? Why is the dog reacting the way they are? Humility and communication. And yes, I did say it, humility. I think that egos really get in the way, and dog training is no place for an ego, especially with tollers. Never has God made a more humbling breed of dog than the Nova Scotia Duck Tolling Retriever. They have a nasty habit of being able to humble you in mere seconds. I think the best trainers out there are the trainers that get down to business and really work hard to train their dog, not bring ego into it. They look at what's effective, what works, and they go with it. And they look at how the dog reacts to what they're doing so that they can improve on what they're doing or back up and redo some of the stuff they're doing. When it comes right down to it, you may want the best trained dog on the face of the earth. And you may think you have the best trained dog on the face of the earth. But when it comes to training, the dog doesn't really care about your ego and what you think about yourself or really him. He cares about how you're treating him and the relationship that you have. I will go ahead and say that oftentimes watching women train, I think they make the best trainers. They're uh, compassionate, they're communicative, and really key into what dogs want and dogs need. That's not to exclude men. I think there's a bunch of us out there that do a good job, but I've seen a lot of guys that testosterone gets in the way, ego gets in the way, 
And uh, especially with tollers, you're never going to manhandle them into doing what you want to do. You may strike fear into them, but they aren't going to run any event or anything that you've taught them at a really high level out of fear. They're mostly going to do it because they want to be with you, they want to please you, and that you've put in the time to teach them. You're part of their partnership and they're part of yours. And when you have that between a dog and a trainer, you have true magic. One of the other basics of training is to learn to slow down and kind of take your time. It's not a race. The finish line is having a well-trained dog. And the better you communicate with them, the faster it's going to go, especially if you have a plan and some goals. I've seen so many people pass a WC hunt test, and then three months later they're out trying a WCI. Now, to some of them's credit, they, those, some of those dogs were trained to a WCI before they even got to the WC, and they do very well. But when I watch a dog barely pass a WC, and then they're out there three months later uh, trying to pass a WCI, it makes me think that, one, they're going a little bit too fast. Two, they're hurting themselves because they didn't cover the basics of the WCI or the WC that's going to help them advance in the future and be a really great dog. I don't know. Maybe they're just chasing the title. Uh, maybe ego's getting in the way. I have no idea. But I think taking your time and really working on your foundation of training, which is obedience and that obedience relates to field, it relates to everything. I think you have to have a strong obedience foundation before you go into field, and then I think that obedience foundation needs to be carried on throughout your training in the field. Because at the end of the day, after we teach them how to hunt, after we teach them how to mark birds, everything else between senior and master really is obedience and good solid training and you aren't going to get good solid training without the obedience having said that i think that also another mistake is is that people don't have the capability to go back go backwards if your dog's throwing you something or doing something different that you've never seen before or maybe not doing what you want him to do maybe he's breaking at the line all of a sudden uh, maybe his heel's not tight. and I would love to talk to you more about the training in agility and some of the other sports, but because I don't do agility, you're pretty much stuck with me on obedience and field. But the fact is, is that if the dog is throwing you something new, something different, you probably either skipped a step when you were on your way up into what you're doing, or you've taught a bad habit, or... Oftentimes, one of our little geniuses will decide to make up their own mind and you didn't have the proper correction at, the, at that point in time that told the dog, you can't do that. This is not right. So you need to take a step backwards and you need to go back, figure out what, what happened, why it happened, and go retrain that. Then you can move forward. I think dog training is often three steps back, four forward. And I think some of those problems are often seen in some other situations. 
I know a lot of people that have taken their dogs out to pro trainers, and I got to tell you, man, I love the field pros. I think the really good ones and a majority of them are more than willing to help you, more than willing to give you advice. Uh, if they realize that you are not going to be bringing your dog to a trainer, they're they're there to share it. And my philosophy has always been that you can't be truly great at anything until you've learned to teach that subject and or shared that information with with people. And sometimes that's a long road to success. But I've had several pros help me out in the past. And I've seen several people that send their dogs to pros. And several of them, the dogs come back for pros and they go through senior hunter and they go into master hunter and they do real well. And I've seen several people take dogs out to pros and get great dogs back. And then the dog ends up just totally failing in just about everything it does or having a tough time. And a lot of those people want to blame the pros. The problem is, is that it's not the pro's fault. The pro trained the dog. Chances are that if it was a good pro, they had you out and they taught you how to run the dog. And the problem probably really is, is that you were either inconsistent, you did not recognize when the dog was throwing you something, or you did not realize or recognize or know how to fix that problem when it arose. So back to training bad things back into the dog, you may have been training the dog to do something different than what the dog had originally been trained to do and thus created a more of a problem. And sometimes those problems become avalanches. And I think people have too much pride to go back to the pro and say, hey, this is what's happened and what I did. Because the truth of it is, is that the dog's been out with the pro it's been trained, it's lived there, it knows what to expect from the pro, but you haven't. And who probably needs more of the training at this point is you. But hey, don't feel bad. It happens to all of us, and uh, I'm probably as guilty of it as anybody else. I think that any hunt test I look back on, I would say probably 90% of the time, was me training something into that dog or going too fast and not having a strong foundation on it or pretty much the way I was handling. I remember one senior hunter test that I was running where the blind was a diagonal across the pond. I lined up my dog and set back and he did exactly what I thought he was going to do, which was square up to the pond. And I was standing there with my dog immediately to my left. Now, if you haven't ever seen anybody handle a dog, this probably won't make much sense to you. But we use the hand signals to guide them to where we want to be to find a bird that they didn't see fall. And one of the rules to casting a dog really is face the dog and cast to the blind where the bird is. Well... I was facing the blind, I had my dog immediately to my left swimming around in the water, and I was saying back and go this direction with my right hand, which he couldn't see because my big dumb butt was in the way, and it built confusion. We eventually got to the bird and got the bird, and we did fail the test, 
and I was, uh, to say politely, pretty upset with myself when I kind of thought about it and went back and looked at it and thought, oh my God, what I do to him and why'd I do that? But, you know, those are the lessons we learn from. I will also tell you that one of the best trainers I ever worked with worked more with me and what I was thinking and what I was doing than he ever did with my doc. And granted, I haven't ever hired a pro trainer, but I have worked with several on occasion to get out and run my dogs with them and pick up a little information and let my dog be seen from a different perspective. I will also tell you that there are some people that are rolling around on the floor right now laughing their butts off, going, Randy, listen, man, he never listened to me. Well, when I first got into the breed, uh, I can be accused of not listening. The truth of the matter is, is that I did listen. But I came from a background of training horses and dogs and pretty much knew about training animals, just didn't have the experience of training a dog to that upper, upper level of the hunt test. Really what I was doing was I was learning how to communicate with my dog. I was watching how he reacted to what I was trying to teach and adjusting that. Uh, the learning curve was tremendously steep and hard on me. And there's a lot of people out there that I believe think that I know everything. And it was embellished by the fact that I tell everybody I know everything. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is, is that I don't. I had a grandfather by the name of George Hillier, who's a great man, who used to tell me as a little kid, it doesn't matter what you know. What matters is that you know where to go to find the information that you need. And so I absorbed all that information I could, and I used it to my benefit. We ended up having uh, pretty good success. I will tell you that uh, I screwed that dog up seven different ways from Sunday on my learning curve. So don't be afraid. It's not how bad you screw them up. It's how bad. <laughs> it's how well you recover. And that communication between you and your dog and how strong it is, you can pull them out of a lot of things. And I think that there's a lot of information out there. Boy, there's books on it. Tommy Dawkins got them. Oh boy, just a ton of books, a ton of information. You can go to YouTube and type in anything you want. And I have a couple of my favorites, and I've mentioned her before, but one is Julie Knudsen. She trains pointing labs, but she really is really strong in focusing on training. And at the end of the day, that's what we're all trying to accomplish. Uh, another one of mine was Bill Hillman. I think the Bill Hillman stuff really caters to an owner-handler. And I also really think it works good with tollers. The problem that I have with Bill is that when you use Bill's stuff, you go into it and when you hit a wall or when your dog throws you something different, Bill doesn't tell you how to get out of that. He tells you how to train what it is you're trying to train, but he doesn't tell you how to train out of a problem or recognize the problem when it comes. And in his defense, how could he or any other pro trainer that's trying to work with you? Oftentimes when I get people who call up and are looking for advice and help, 
you know, I say, send me a video. Tell me what your pup's doing so that I can see it to be able to give the proper advice. Because just saying train X, Y, and Z really sometimes may work, but really good training is, like I said before, reacting to the dog. So there's all this information out there that you can go gather. Uh, you're going to be at club meetings. Hopefully you found a retriever club that you can join. There's a tremendous amount of help there. And everybody's got an opinion, <laughs> including me. But uh, hopefully you, you avoid the pitfalls of those and just take in the information and use it for what it is as a value to you. And while we're talking about that and the different sources of information, you know, there's going to be different philosophies, too, for you that you're going to need to decide between. One of them, I think, is the positive training. Now, when you say positive, uh, I buy into positive training as far as it means that you don't hit a dog with a newspaper. You don't really ever hit a dog. Um, yelling at the top of your lungs, calling them names, uh, putting fear into them. I don't think that's really positive, and I don't buy into that. But the positive training where you only say positive things to your dog. When you say sit and you give the dog a cookie or a treat and then the next time you say sit and the dog does nothing and you turn around, I don't really think that that's, that's training. I think that you need to have the negative. You need to have the failures that you can correct so the dog can learn. Failure and correction really is how we get to great training. I've also seen people clicker training, and I think, wow, they're doing real well with it. And it was funny. I was talking to a friend of mine who happens to own and run Britney's, and she's also a pro show handler. And we were talking about the clicker training. She really opened my eyes to it. She looked at me, and she said, you know what clicker training really does? And I looked at her and said, no. Why? <laughs> and she said, it teaches the handler timing. And I think timing is crucial. If you're potty training a puppy and you don't catch him going on the floor, you can't reprimand him two seconds after because they don't know what they're being reprimanded for. And oftentimes in the field, I see people uh, trying to work a correction on a dog that has no idea what he's being corrected for. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in other podcasts, but I think timing is absolutely key. And clicker training does teach timing. In fact, I think I tell a lot of people, and I have never said this before, but before you put an e-collar on a dog, if you're going to use an e-collar, use a clicker first so that you know where your timing is. Because timing is crucial with an e-collar. If you can't get the timing right, you might as well not be using one. You will also hear about the miracle methods. The gentle leader, the Caesar Milan special blue collar with links, uh, the new inventive leash that will turn your dog into this obedient, loving hound overnight. And my hum humble opinion about all of these is hogwash, horse pucky, 
pig dung, whatever you want to call it. Uh, they become crutches. And, you know, I could probably teach you a simple wrap that would save you the twenty nine ninety nine uh on TV. And I, I will tell you, anybody that knows me knows I'm a sucker, sucker for as-seen-on-TV specials. So, so I get it a little bit. But uh, the problem is, is that you put these things on your dog and they're hitting pressure points and they may work for a bit. But if you fail to train the behavior you're looking for into the dog, then all those things become as a crutch that you always have to use on your dog. You don't have a trained dog. You've got a tool on a dog. And the best tool for a dog is good training. If you're trying to train a heel and you use one of these leashes, as long as you're teaching the heel concept and the dog is understanding it and you're working towards getting away from that collar or that wrap or that leader, then I think they could be good tools. But they really aren't necessary. Remember, nothing takes the place of good, consistent training. The next thing I want to talk about is the use of the electric collar. There's a lot of people out there that think it's cruel and inhumane punishment. And I will tell you, if it's used improperly, it absolutely is. But most of the people I know use it and use it properly. And, and it can be a great training aid. I think the key to it is is to use it on the lowest possible setting. And it ends up being kind of a tap on the shoulder for your pup when you aren't right next to him to be able to make that immediate instant connection and correction to him. We'll be talking more about the e-collar in its own podcast later on. And I realize there's some of you out there that say no way and no how. And I think it's possible to train a dog without an e-collar. They do it in Europe all the time uh, because they're out lot there. But we have the benefit here of being able to have those and use them and hopefully we use them properly and for the guys that don't boy that it just really upsets me when i see a guy hammering a dog with the e-collar uh they're training out of fear and they aren't really training they're just getting a reaction so we've talked about training aids and some training philosophy i think there's one more thing that we need to hit on and that's that's pressure. You know, I used to hear all the time about my first dog, oh, he doesn't take pressure well, he doesn't take pressure well, he doesn't have drive. And I think drive and pressure are absolutely two different things. And I think drive is a result of having fun and desire, and that's built with confidence. And I think pressure is absolutely confidence and is built. Uh, people think pressure or drive, I'm sorry, is how fast a dog goes out in the field. And I guess that's one definition of it. But drive to me is desire. A dog that's running around the house with its hair on fire 24-7, climbing the walls, you think is going to be a high-drive field dog, may not be a high-drive field dog. And it may not be a dog you want in the field. Some of the best field dogs are methodical and have a good work ethic and know how to get you out to the bird and know what they're doing and work with you as a team, not just run as fast as they can. So with that being said, let's move on and let's go talk about how to be 
the most effective we can be in training and training on purpose to get to our goals a little bit quicker, have a little bit better time and a little bit more fun training. To start out, I'm going to tell you a little bit to start out, I'm going to give a little bit of background from my real estate career. Uh, I went through a course early on in my career called Sweat Hogs, and to put it bluntly, it was brutal. Uh, they made us go in and cold call until we got a listing. We couldn't leave the office. We had homework assignments, and if we didn't do the homework assignments, we got a strike. If we didn't get a listing, we got a strike. And if you got three strikes, you lost your $800. Now, it may not sound like a lot of money now, but back in the uh, 80s, late 80s, early 90s, $800 to a young 20-year-old broker was the world. And I just couldn't afford to lose it. Well, we went into cold call. And I shared the office with a guy named Jake. And uh, Jake, if you'd ever seen WKRP in Cincinnati, Jake was Herb Tarlick, right down to the white patent leather shoes and the white belt and the plaid shirt and the brown polyester pants and the he had brown curly hair and a 70s mustache. He was, he was really rocking it in the late 80s. But uh, Jake also had a really gruff voice and almost zero people skills from what I could tell, but he was actually pretty successful in real estate for a while because uh, he, he tried the cold calling route and discovered it wasn't for him. He would call out and say, hey, I'm Jake from Cherry Creek Realtors, and you want to buy a house or what? And people would hang up on him. So Jake figured out that if he went to a title company, and got a list of the homeowners, absentee homeowners, homeowners that weren't living in the house and sent them a letter saying, hey, the market's really turning around, that he would get some business. He actually listed a bunch of houses without ever talking to a single person. It was quite impressive. Uh, but because Jake lacked the other skills that were going to give him longevity in the real estate career, he ended up going out. And I Hope he's doing really well. I tell you that because persistence is definitely different than consistence. Jake had persistence. And if he would have been consistent in his education towards real estate, he probably would have had a, a ton more of success. Being persistent isn't good enough. You need both persistence and consistence when you're field training. To give the dog the best shot. Uh, persistence means not giving up, trying to figure out what you're doing wrong, where you can make changes to guarantee your success. And consistence is to continually do it and be consistent with what you're doing. Back to teaching your dog to count. Uh, be consistent. Always sit on one, not five times, not three times, not two times. Uh, hear, the hear command, or come, same thing. If the dog doesn't come to you, you lead them up, and if they don't come, you bring them back in. Every time you say come, then you can reward them. But we'll, and we'll cover more on that in some of the puppy podcasts in the future. But one of the things that uh, Sweathog said that really stuck with me over a 30-year real estate career is that uh, 
you know, sitting in your office looking through the, the MLS book, before the advent of the Internet or the computers, we used to get books once a week that had every listing in Metro Denver in it. And we'd get another sold book. And they were quite valuable. We used to get your butt into the office first thing Thursday morning so you could get your book before somebody else stole it. And they were also quite expensive. But uh, in Sweat Hogs, they, you know, a lot of brokers sit in their office and they were looking through the MLS book and just seeing what's out there. And you'd ask them what they were doing. They said, well, I'm, I'm looking to see what the market's doing. Well, you'd probably be better off getting a client and going out and showing them a house to see what the market's doing rather than uh, sit in your office. And Sweat Hogs used to say to work, work hard and play hard and work effectively that a lot of people do work and they think they're doing work, but they're really being unproductive and wasting time and they aren't wasting time honestly. So sitting in an office looking through an MLS book, you might as well be sitting in a dark closet with a bottle of tequila and that book because you're doing about the same thing. Getting out there and getting it done is what it's all about. <clears throat> So same thing applies to your training with your dog. When you go out to train, have a goal, have an idea of what you're going to do. And I don't care whether it's obedience, agility, you know, field, anything. Have a goal of what you want to work on that day. Watch the dog's behavior. Be effective. When you go out, you can go out and get to work right away. Now, a lot of people like training groups. They're a social aspect. And I know some people that, you know, that is what they're there for. They really enjoy the social aspect over it. I generally train alone because I can get more done in a shorter period of time than hanging out with a bunch of people. And I love seeing those people and hanging out with them. But to be truly effective for me and my dog... It's probably better if I go out alone and just get after it and get it done. Uh, for those of you who don't have wingers or equipment, sometimes you have to have other people out there. But I can generally run my dog three or four times in the time it would take me to run, run him once or twice, even in a small group. So if you're going out for the social aspect of the group, which most of them are, I think that's awesome and I love hanging out with people and talking training and dogs and life. But uh, if you're really after a goal, set your goal and get out and get it done. And when I say set a goal, I mean look at what the end product is and compartmentalize everything you need to do to get there and start working on it day by day. I'd write it down and get after it. You know, when I talk about compartmentalize, everybody says things like, I'm going to force fetch my dog. Well, force fetch is really three, three different things, and we'll talk more about that in a force fetch video. But learn to compartmentalize and learn to master those little things that come together and make, make your training whole. Another story I wanted to tell you is that Growing up, when I went to high school, I went to uh, Golden High School, and I went to school with a guy named Bill Phillips, who ended up owning a company called EAS, Experiment and Applied Sciences. And uh, Billy was a bodybuilder. I think he was in Mr. Universe. Uh, and he was that way in high school. He's a great guy. 
and really focused and really dedicated. He ended up having success to a level that most of us never achieve. He ended up actually selling his company to, I believe it was Joe Weider, and I think the price I heard was somewhere around $40 million. But Billy had a book out around the time that he was running his Body for Life competition. And something in that book really struck me. It was talking about a high point and his photographer, that most photographers that would come in and shoot a session would come in and take 2,000 pictures and then pick the best five. And he said his favorite photographer would come in and spend hours and hours on setup. He had a picture in his mind of what he wanted. He had an idea. He had a goal. He had a plan. And he would set up his cameras and his lighting and his apertures and everything. He would bring in the models that were to be shot. He'd take 10, 12 pictures each, pack up and leave. And he was, by Billy's uh own confession, one of the best photographers there. And I think that applies to training too. I think, you know, spend some time on your setup. Think about what you're trying to accomplish. Are you trying to get through a wall? Are you trying to run run a hill and up over a hill or get a dog through water and up on the bank and back to you? You know, think about what you want to do start stretching the dog a little bit, start slow and start stretching him out a little bit, but to be really, truly effective, which is what this podcast is really about, is uh, have that goal and set it up really well. You know, well-placed marks, single marks that challenge the dog a little bit and continue to teach and build on what you've been working on are better than triples or doubles or just about anything you can do. That's why if you talk to really experienced people, they will tell you that singles are the name of the game. So in short, one of the things you can do is always be looking for that high point. Going too fast. Letting your ego get in the way. Uh, Not stopping and slowing down and working on your foundation or your problems to make sure that they aren't your future enhanced problems. Wasting time and training things that are maybe fun or you want to train and not training to a goal. All these things can really drag you down. But on the positive, if you learn how to communicate with your dog, if you learn how to take your time and remove that ego from it, and watch what you're training, Uh, I think you'll see your training start taking a progressively faster and faster line to a finish, or at least your goal. Dog training is about little adjustments, and I think if you learn to make those and learn to concentrate on what we talked in this cast about the positives and avoiding those pitfalls, I think uh, you'll, you'll end up being just more than fine, you know. Sometimes it's about little adjustments. That's life. When you get in a car, you don't just hold the wheel straight. You make little adjustments even on a straight road to get to your destination. And that's really what we're about. So 
With that being said, I'll tell you, I'm really excited. I've got a special guest coming up on the next podcast. Uh, no, no, two podcasts from now, who is just friggin' awesome. Uh, Terry Simons, who started the Clear Cancer Foundation, is a pro-agility trainer and also happens to be the color commentator for the Westminster Agility Trials is going to be joining us, and I've actually already recorded that podcast, and I've got to tell you guys something. It's absolutely phenomenal. I really love it. But let me close it out this way with uh, asking God to make me the man my dog thinks I am and bless me with his character. And I'd also ask you guys to uh, please give to some of our foundations and charities that benefit tollers. I don't care where you give your cancer money, but uh, please to anybody who's going to help fight this disease and doing good work in it. And I think I'm going to start compiling a list later on of some of those charities and universities that it can go to. One of my favorites is Clear Canine uh, Cancer Research and Education. Um, That's Terry Simon's group that he founded. He does uh, movies and videos spreading awareness and education on the disease. Um, Another one of my favorites in the breed is Toller Rescue Incorporated. They aren't associated with the national club, and they will take a dog that pretty much looks like a Toller and have been doing great work for years. You can find them on Facebook. Uh, The other one is Craig Katz, who makes great duck calls. And uh, I, I use his calls. I love his calls. And he's a sole proprietor and a Toller guy and a hunter. And Katz Calls is also on Facebook, or Craig Katz, K-A-T-Z, And I believe you can also buy his calls on eBay or just hit them up on Facebook directly. But until the next episode, everybody take care. And I look forward to talking to you then.